Good afternoon. Welcome to Fan Drive Time. I'm Blake Murphy. Ben Ennis out today. So we got a rotating cast of pals in here throughout the show. We'll talk to Howard Beck of Sports Illustrated about the NBA trade deadline, which is one week away. We'll talk to him at 530. We got Ross Tucker, as we usually do, taking an early look at some of the kind of tactical storylines um, for the Super Bowl. Big battle of the offensive lines, which is right up Ross Tucker's alley. And then my old pal, Eric Green, will be on with us around 630 for a Raptors Reasonableist reunion. Probably mostly talk about the Royal Rumble. Um, just trying to get as many R words in here as I can. Uh, Ben's off today, probably back tomorrow. But to kick us off today, joined by Justin Bourne instead of Kipper and Bourne of Sportsnet on .ca, on TV, on radio. Not unlike yourself. Yeah, the only guy who does more things and <laughs> does them all better than me. It's it's Not humbling. Like. How are you, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. Um, is Ben sick? Is Ben... Mm-hmm. He's, okay. That's just... Yeah. How does it make you feel having been in a room with him for many days in a row? Dude, like almost a year into long COVID complications, like whatever, throw whatever at me. Like <laughs> I either have the antibodies that I need or I don't at this point. And yeah. my, like, it doesn't matter. My body has just been spent a year doing weird things. I'm, I'll be fine. I'm the same. Kipper has been sick for a couple of days. And he's like, ah, I don't want to come in today and get you sick. And I was like, I just, let's go. Just... Also, you have like kids at home. Oh, yeah. They're little germ machines, as I understand it. That's, I feel like I've been exposed to most of Earth's germs. So. I, I want to run a parenting question by you and i didn't plan to do this but i was talking to uh, a friend of mine who is a big raptors fan and he has a couple of kids and he sent me a text shortly before we came on and uh first of all he sent me the text a text initially because he runs the wrestling company smash wrestling that i do some commentary work for okay and he was sending me a message laughing that i guess during one of the matches i called on saturday i started making a comparison to 2019 og and with one of the wrestlers <laughs> and uh hyper specific yeah my brain functions in a very particular way uh no but he sends me a couple pictures of his four-year-old at like the school book fair demanding a scotty barnes poster like pointing at it and like having a a bit of a a bit of a fit about it and he is on he caved and he should yeah so he said i'm trying to figure out if i'm doing the dad thing right or wrong and my point was you probably don't want to let the kid win all the time but if you're gonna let them win like something they're passionate about and yeah. sports early on it. And he's a big Raptors fan too. Yeah. So I think that's a W, right? Like oh, you, can, yeah. you can take that. So I was just at the scholastic book fair with my son who is six and you know, they, I think the kids just want to get something. He had like a creepy crawly plastic squeeze toys. Like, can I get this? And I won that one. I dug in. That's meaningless. If he wanted a poster of an athlete, I can't tell you, there are very few athletes who I would say no to. Like I just, because I'm a sports guy and I want to be involved in his world. I want him to be a sports guy. He's just not a sports guy. Yeah, I remember you telling me that I don't before know he it, hasn't taken to him much. If you can know that you're not a sports guy. But yes, if he wanted a Scotty Barnes poster, I would get by him one of those fat heads and make it half his wall <laughs> and just stare at Scotty Barnes all day. Yeah, not a bad not a bad uh, <laughs> player to get behind right. at, a, at a young age. Yeah, the, the hard part, I guess, at six, if you haven't taken to sports, is that the way we develop hockey players in this country like he's behind at this point there's no catching up so no joke i i going this is the first year he can play organized hockey so he is technically u7 as a six-year-old and someone was like is he going to try out and i was like try, try for what 
And like the select team or whatever is like, how could that be a thing? They haven't played a game yet in their life, <laughs> you know, in their entire life. He's never played a game. They're like, is he? A... So yes, he is behind. He is a house hockey player because I failed in the first five years of his existence. Or did you succeed? Well, wait and see on that, but I, I'm hopeful I did. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know the ins and outs of a life in hockey. Maybe there's a book coming out next week that would uh, <laughs> give me some details on what that's like. Maybe, maybe you don't want, uh, maybe you don't want it. Tell me about the book. I know you're coming on next week, and we'll go mm. deeper on the book. But while I have you, and while we're talking about it, it's out next week. Yeah, it's out. It's out the uh, the fourteenth. I'm I'm just excited about it. It's long time coming. Basically, on my own struggles with. You know, some of the fun parts of hockey, you know, alcoholism, um, you know, my dad went through that as well, uh, concussions and all that. So I, I hope it's a redeeming look for hockey in some ways that I'm not necessarily blaming the sport for the negative things that I experienced, but just to look at if you live a life in any sport, these are some of the things you come across and trying to navigate that. And yeah, it's uh, it's my life. You, you and I mentioned off the air how much do you want the public to know about you? <laughs> this is me being like, I'm just naked. Just, yeah. Here it is. Now you know me. I don't ever want to talk about myself again, <laughs> but if you're that curious, here's the whole book. Exactly. Uh, that book is called Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and a Life in Hockey by Justin Bourne. It's out uh, February 14th next week. We'll bring you, Thanks, brother. I think, yeah, that's not next week. That's two weeks away. I don't even Close understand. Close enough. It's, I don't. If it wasn't for doing will lose show every tuesday i would have no idea how to anchor myself to the calendar that everyone else operates on. no i'm i'm with you on that and particularly being multi-sport guy like yourself like you'll know when it's seasonal switches because yeah. it's blue jays here there's only rafters they, yeah just judge it by the sports teams in town yeah That's once the super do. bowls pass it's like oh well what's the next calendar thing if you're an nfl fan oh the draft means it's april yeah is it pitchers and catchers soon yeah two weeks uh right, right around when your book comes out they okay. i've heard that the jays they were loading up the truck all the batting gloves and bats and everything and then a copy of for each flare of your book for each that player. might be all of the sales all day <laughs> but I, I would take it um okay so your your kids out there not playing select because he would look like uh the leafs looked against the boston bruins last night <laughs> hey, hey uh nice leafs is five to two i know the leafs are now off until february 10th we've already seen clips of mitch marner down in in florida the the place he was drafted that's where the draft night was hosted um and we're already seeing some of the stuff like the the pitch and puck and all the nonsense that's really coming. tough to say without swearing by the way pitch and puck yeah I've, I've i've messed that up a couple of times oh yeah surprised you're still employed <laughs> yes thank you uh okay so i do want to get into a lot of the leaf stuff from last night and some forward-looking stuff about where the leafs are at in your estimation um before we do that though you've seen some of these like pitch and puck things come out yeah. you're a golfer you're a former hockey player yeah you think you'd be pretty good at it? Dream scenario. I saw those highlights and I was like, let me at him. It really does look awesome. I, I get why they got to do this stuff, right? It's you got to make it hyper specific to that part of that region. And, you know, for these guys who spend all their years in cold climates and all that, go play the pitch and puck. It's cute. I got no problem with it. Yeah. Then I, mean, I, I just want my turn. That's all. Yeah. You want yeah. your turn. Yeah. <laughs> Give you yours. Yeah, the NBA all-star game is in Utah this year. The, the NBA generally hasn't done, like, city-specific stuff. Like, when it was in Toronto, you didn't do, like, a, an ice and snow dunk contest. No. I don't know what you would begin to do for a Utah All-Star game anyway. Yeah, the bars close at 11. I imagine you drive across state lines is what yeah. you do in Utah and go somewhere you can get a cocktail for those guys. <laughs> uh, okay, so the Leafs lose last night. It, it's not – I mean, it's just one game. Sheldon Keefe kind of talked about after that – yeah, there are some qualifying things, but it shows you how much work there is still to do uh, the rest of the way for this Leaf team. There's no Austin Matthews in that game. Maybe not a lot to take from that game in isolation. Um, 
did you feel that this showed us anything though? Or, or were you already in the camp that the Bruins are a juggernaut and there's a bit of a gap between them and everyone else? Yeah. You know, I, I don't like to just like throw the game away and be like, well, you know, I, I feel the same as I did before that game. Cause some things did change for me. You know, when Morgan Riley was hurt, we watched the Leafs win a whole bunch. And this is not saying Riley's the reason why they had struggles at all. But what they did really well when he was out is they were just a really patient team. I found that they could be in a 1-1 game or down 2-1 and they just kind of stuck with the process all the way through the game, which that, you know, you had a lot of guys who are playing above their role, eager to please the coach and just doing their job. And I felt like Boston really did that well last night. And so the Leafs go down 2-1. You know, they're into the third period and, you know, Lilligren makes a really hard pinch, you know, two minutes into the third period where clearly he doesn't have guys to reload behind him. And now it's a two on one and Greer scores the goal to make it three one. And then the very next shift it happens again, Brody dives in down the wall and no one's covering. I felt like they got away from the things that made them successful when Riley was out. They were impatient and we've got to go get one. We're down one. We're chasing the game when there's still 20 minutes. And you're still the Leafs with Mitch Marner and Willie Nylander. Just relax, you know, stick to the plan. And you like to think it'll come out. And I thought they just were a little too, too much desperation too soon last night. So the, the Brody one for sure, that was especially coming off the, the backs of the Liljegren outcome. It was like, okay, let's not chase bad money with good money. Right. The Liljegren one, I at least understood a little bit because that's something that he's done a little bit more this year with yeah. some success. And, and earlier in that game, you know, we saw Sandine with a really nice play in the neutral zone to, to kind of push some offense forward. Um, how hard is that, especially for this third pair group that mm-hmm. obviously they played roles that were beyond what we expected for them. And now they're back in their smaller roles. How hard is that to navigate? If you're Sandine, if you're Liljegren, where, you know, what, what got you not even to the show, but what helped you succeed in a larger role? You almost have to scale back a little bit now, at least against competition like Boston. Yeah. I love that question because it is a really, a really challenging thing. So one of the things that Sheldon Keefe preaches is bringing the D down the wall to extend ozone time. So you you have to know as forwards, if you're the high forward, there is a lot of like covering for the D going in. But you're right. If you're Lilliger and Sandine, you're, you've, all, you've been told all year long that we're aggressive down the walls. And the other thing with those two guys is they're maybe not pure defenders once they're stuck in their D zone because they are smaller. Like it's harder to clear out the front of the net when you're six foot or 5'11 or whatever. So they would be more eager to shut things down in the offensive zone. So again, there's more reason for them to think, yeah, okay, I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to go down the walls and try to keep it in this end of the rink. So that is the challenge with them is going to be risk management and and finding when it's time to go and when it's time to pull back. It's really tough to tell those guys to play differently after they've had so much success. You know, Lilligren's been playing with Morgan Riley and now it's like, all right, you're going to play 15 minutes and don't go when you've been going. It is a lot to ask. It's, because they're smaller, they do have to make more aggressive choices at times. And that's the type of thing that gives me pause as a viewer being like, can you, will there not be moments where that burns you in the playoffs? It does make me a little uneasy. It's tough too, because, you know, obviously they have some real chemistry together as a pair and the way these pairings work out, especially if we're assuming kind of a first pair, second pair, third pair time split and they kind of hierarchically like that, which uh, is the most I've tripped over a word just about ever. (laughs) I don't know if I could say that word Uh, ever. So, so, you know, let's imagine a playoff scenario where, okay, first pair is getting the most minutes. Second pair gets the second most minutes. Third pair gets the next minutes. If you're resigned to Liljegren and Sandine being your third pair and you haven't, you know, in Liljegren's case, 
he built up a lot of trust from me over the course of this year. Yeah. I, I would be okay with him not being that third pair. I think Sandine's pretty clearly the third pair guy. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate then the fact that, and we, we can get into Morgan Riley on his own, that he has maybe needed to be maybe not sheltered, but helped along a little bit since he came back from injury. And you've got this low, Grin Sandine pairing that you maybe don't trust fully as a defensive zone unit because of the size um, or the physicality. Like you can't start that third unit and Morgan Riley's unit, both in the offensive right. zone all the time. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, today on our show, Kipper is talking about, you know, he thought Sheldon Keefe should have recognized that Lilligren and Sandine were struggling and changed the pairs up and mm-hmm. said, okay, we got to get these guys with someone else. Um, yeah, trying to identify that is one of the real challenges. And you, if you, if you do end up adding a guy that bumps down Sandine, make him your seventh guy. So, you know, in the fantasy land, that's Matthias Ekholm is maybe the best one you could get. Nashville is, you know, maybe uh, on the outs a little bit with Chikrin or Gavrikov, whoever. And all of a sudden Lilligren doesn't have to be the reliable guy. He can be the guy who takes the chances down the wall. And you feel like, like Morgan Riley is at his best when he gets to play with a guy who is defensively responsible, like Brody. I think Lilligren is the same way that he, you'll get the best out of him if he doesn't have to be the reliable one. And with the Sandine pair with him right now, I do feel that way that I trust him more on the defensive side of things. And maybe he's not as freed up. So, you know, maybe you, if you get another player, maybe you get a good player that's better than Sandine, but also makes Lilligren better. In terms of the style of that player, I I know we can tend to be reductive with size and physicality, clearing the front of the net, you know, and and there are associations we make with those guys being a little slower afoot. And we we saw last year the the Leafs go out and get Ilya Libushkin, and then he didn't, I mean, he played. Great third pair D. Yeah. But he's on the first pair. (laughs) Yeah, and he played in the playoffs, but he played 13 minutes a game, and it was like not, it was not, particularly great do you come into i know it's early for trade deadline talks still even though we we all know you know make our content around it um but in my estimation you tell me if you disagree that the bar for what a defensive upgrade looks like if you're trying to fill that type has gotten higher because Lilia Grin and Sandine have improved. Yeah. And I know we're talking about this after not their best night, but Lilia Grin has had a very good year and Sandine still had the oh, moments yeah. and stuff. The bar has to be higher than a Labushkin type to talk about bumping one of those guys out of the top six, right? For sure. No, that's a really good point. And, you know, in past years, it's been, you know, can you get, you know, David Savard was the big coveted asset that went to Tampa Bay the year they won the cup and not that he was overly impactful, but you know, they filled out their decor in, in a nice way. But if you go get a guy like a third pair guy, a guy who's been playing third pair on a bad team, you know, is he going to be better than Sandine? Probably not. And this is, this is the toughest thing for me as someone who comes to these things from a, a more analytic numbers perspective is the, the biggest Obviously, goaltending is the biggest black box in hockey, but how to evaluate a defense mm. first defenseman from a bad team situation. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know. All the metrics say they're bad, <laughs> yeah. but they play on Columbus yeah. or Phoenix or whatever. Like yeah, they're in their own end the whole game. Yeah. And yeah. I know that like, this is what we have film for, and this is what you do your, your tape dives for and stuff, but it is a little hard. Like once you get out of that kind of second tier of defenseman addition yeah. to be like, is this guy going to make a difference? How do we pluck Gavrikov out of Columbus? And, and, you know, he's playing 22 minutes a game in a terrible situation. What does 17 and a half minutes a game look like in a good situation? Uh, There's not a good way to do it. I got really bad news for you. 
Uh, they don't know either. <laughs> the teams don't know. Like, you're right. They have scouts, and they say, I've watched him, and he's the only guy who can get it out of their end. I know he's minus 24, but it's because he plays the best players and the most minutes on a bad team. Uh, there are certainly those things, but you're right. It does come down to, was he part of the solution or part of the problem there? And and that is a great challenge. I agree that that is, you know, the bar for who would have to come into Toronto to bump out Rasmus Sandin is significantly higher. But I think the conversation, you know, you're pushing it towards with how do you evaluate the physicality side of it too? Like how important is that? Because we are guys, both of us, who like to look at the numbers and say, mm-hmm. Sandine's numbers are great. You know, he drives play in the right direction when he's uh, on the ice more often than not. Playing a team seven times in a row in a short window, the physical component yeah. takes on a different weight, right? For sure. And also just, you know, for the opposition, you don't, because of that seven game factors, you don't love having a D-man that the other guys go, oh, whew, I get to be out there against him. It's going to be easy. I can take some chances. And like Sandine will run into you, that is, mm-hmm. for sure, but... Yeah, I guess what one thing that that Kipper has complained about, you know, for this Toronto Maple Leafs team and something they need is a competitiveness where it's a go back at guys, jawing, you know, like the the Lightning have some smaller guys who are like that. Like Brandon Hagel will yap in your ear and get at you and do the whole thing and Ross Colton will do it and it used to be Yanni Gord. And so it's not necessarily pure size, it's a nastiness and all those sort of things you don't like to play. Yeah, we saw another example of that last night. You know Brad Marchand is is oh. A1 when it comes to that. Exactly. Um, taking shots at our co-workers, Steve Dangle. The audacity. Uh, that was a very funny tweet, though, at least. It, it, you know, full, fully enjoyed that Brad got into it. I thought Dangle <laughs> handled, him, handled himself well. Yeah. It's good for the game. Um, so in terms of some undersized, scrappy guys like that who can, you know, play above their size maybe, I know Michael Bunting was a guy that you were pretty critical of on the broadcast last night. Now, he is second in the league in penalties drawn this year. He's third in the league over the last two seasons behind McDavid and Dubois. He has, in the macro, done a good job of being Mm -hmm. that pest and having teams respond to him in ways that get the Leafs power play opportunities. Last year in a seven-game playoff series, he drew one penalty. Mm -hmm. You, last night, pointed out some of the ways in which I called this the Draymond line because Draymond Green with the Golden State Warriors, you want him playing as close to that edge as Mm -hmm. possible, but the second he goes over that edge, it's taking away more than it's adding, and you want to try to manage that guy so he's as close to that edge as possible. In Bunting's case, it sounded like last night you thought he was on the wrong side of that edge, and and the benefits just weren't there against Boston. Yeah, one thing I would be curious to look at, and I haven't looked at it in a while, his penalty differential over the last uh, year, couple of years, because I feel like he started to they're starting to whistle him with the other guy. You know, you saw him take uh, you know trading penalties with Charlie Coyle last night, but you know it's one thing that comes up when uh, talking to guys who used to play in the NHL, and Kipper obviously being one of those. And talking about, you know, the referees are human and you have relationships with them. I have guys that, you know, I got friends on the internet. I got Facebook buddies from 20 (laughs) years ago in university because referees that I just knew from on the ice, just chatting to them there. So you do have relationships. And, you know, if, if I were to try to embarrass a coworker on the air, you'd be less likely to, you know, have me back or give me the benefit of the doubt when you team me up for questions. It's the same with the referee. Like, it's just your... You mentioned, you know, one penalty in the in the postseason. It gets harder to get the benefit of the doubt the more you show up a guy. And last night when he gets pulled down by Marchand, he stands up and he points at the ref and the other, you know, the 18,000 people in the building or 20,000, whatever it is, you know, they they see that and make the, makes the ref the bad guy. So I, I just think 
yes, work hard. I don't even care about flopping as much, but the showing up the ref stuff's a bit much. It's tough. It's not going to, like, the, the benefit of that is not going to last very long. And I, I did just look up the net penalties. Um, over the last two years, he's 37th in net penalties, but he is barely neutral this year. He's a plus yeah. three in okay. terms of net penalties. So, so it does feel like it's worn off. That's just eye test, and I don't know if that's enough to back that up, but it does seem like he's getting the benefit of the doubt less. Yeah, I mean, look, anytime you're averaging almost two penalties per 60 yourself, you're Tough probably set up the other way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, that bunting element and how to sustain that level of pestiness without crossing the line is, you know, to me, that's one of the, Hey, things are a little different in the playoffs and you've got to shape your game for the playoffs. That's a, a thing. A young guy is learning still. Um, I, I know I got to let you go here, but I was pretty fascinated by the, the stat you dropped on the broadcast last night about John Tavares mm. and how he, I think this was from sport logic yeah. uh, leads the league in one-on-one battles, one, one success. But there was yep. also an example last night of kind of one of those moments where in over the course of 82, you can understand Tavares not getting on top of the guy yeah. uh, in transition defense early enough. And as a center, that's your mark. That's, that's the guy you've got to wipe out of the play. And that's one of those things that, you know, there's not really an accounting for that. It's you, you did it. And then point, yeah. things didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. It's that's hard. It, it is it's hard to measure void, right? Yeah. It's hard to measure what doesn't happen. Um, when you look at, and this doesn't have to be about Tavares, because again, he's winning all these one, one-on-one one yeah. battles. He's been awesome, yeah. um, including having a great segment with you and, Kip, you and Kipper earlier in the week. That's right. That kind of play, is that the kind of thing that if you're in that video room, if you're in that coaching staff, that's what you're drilling yeah. down on between now and, and April because those are the, the kind of playoff-y things? Yeah, and you know what? I got killed. Uh, Nick Robertson played against Columbus in the postseason, and I, I drew up a, or I showed a clip of him not doing what Tavares didn't do last night, which is, you know, Sheldon Keefe calls them cutoffs, which basically... You know, it's interference away from the puck. It is. It's just blatant interference. But refs never call it when it's not around the puck. So as the other D start to get on their horse to jump up into the play, you get in front of them and you give them one and kill their momentum, it's too late. They can't make up the speed to be a relevant force. So you don't have to do much. You just have to, just a little one. A Babcock used to call it a sting. So you get a sting, you get a cutoff, whatever you want to call it, it makes all the difference. And so those are places where you go, Okay, we're playing Tampa. They are fast. You know what makes them not fast? When our wingers in the offensive zone make them look slow. And so you're finding these ways. And I once wrote an article about how to stop Connor McDavid, which you cannot do. <laughs> but the theory would just be interference in all the wrong place, in all the right places. And you know, so when you talk about team defense and details, those are little things. You watch some of these bad teams play. I watched uh, Montreal play. Ottawa or something this you, past weekend. You poor thing. I know. I was on, I mean, listen, I was on the broadcast. You can't not watch. And it's just chance, chance, chance. And if you're not doing analysis, you're like, it's a fast game. They're trading chances. I'm enjoying this. You're a coach. You're like, no one is doing anything, you know, that they've been taught to do. So, yeah, that's certainly an area that, that's worth highlighting for a coach. And it's, it's you know, again, to do the cross-sport comparison, you know, we talk about transition offense and transition defense in basketball and pretty much the highest value thing you can do defensively is make sure the other team has to slow down into the half court. It's like yeah. transition offense, even if you are a very good transition defensive team, you're going to give up more on those possessions than the bad or than the worst half court really? defense. That's interesting because on the four check as a uh, hockey team, the goal isn't to go get the puck. It's to stop the the breakout. Just get it stopped. Right. So make them set up in a uh, you know behind the net so you have time to set up. Or so the whole thing is the same idea is to stop speed before it becomes speed because once it's 
you know, the snowball rolling down the hill, it's too late. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and that's, you know, the the version of the interference that's not interference is just the little bump as you get back to position or, you know, the one thing the Raptors do a lot of because they have so much length is just ball stop in transition. It's mm. like, okay, this isn't good defense, but it's good defense enough positionally to make a guy slow down and wait for some teammates so he can't just go to the rim. I feel like we have lots of cross-sport comparisons yeah. we could do. Yeah, well, we should uh, we should do it again sometime. I know well, we I'm like, back next week Yeah, or the uh, one after. Yeah, whenever, uh, whenever days are. I have no <laughs> idea. Um, we got to let you go. Uh, we've got Howard Beck from Sports Illustrated talking NBA trade deadline next. Justin Bourne of Kipper and Bourne of Sportsnet.ca and the Sportsnet Broadcast. Thanks so much, buddy. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll be back after this as Fan Drive Time continues with What Up, Beck? of Sports Illustrated. Welcome back to Fan Drive Time. Blake Murphy running solo today with Ben Ennis out. But that's okay. We called in some heavy hitters to guest with us uh, to help us sort through, hey, we're one week out from the NBA trade deadline. It's nice for me to get to ask someone else questions instead of being on the answer side of things. Who better than senior writer at Sports Illustrated, co-host of the Crossover Pod, Howard Beck. Howard, how are you? I'm doing well. Who are these heavy hitters you're bringing on? I hope they're uh, got more to bring to the table than than me. I'm I'm like a warm up act. Well, look, the, it's been a crazy two days in the in the WNBA, and Kia Nurse just announced she's not returning to the Phoenix Mercury. So, uh, no offense, Howard, but I, I I have been messaging her, being like, "Hey, where are you going? Do we can we can we get a scoop here? Can we get a scoop here?" Um, I did actually want to ask you about the WNBA before we get into NBA trade deadline stuff. Um, it's been a pretty chaotic couple of days and a lot of buzzy news stuff a lot of uh, reports that ended up being incorrect I know you're a guy who has followed and care about the league uh, for years this is kind of a good thing for the league right that it can take up this kind of space and cause this kind of excitement at the start of free agency I mean you and I have a lot of the same people I think in our Twitter timelines Hmm. I'm sure and I can't remember a time where the W was, I mean, there, there probably have been other moments, but the, uh, the flurry of activity over the last 24 hours, the flurry of tweets reporting and, and um, you know, scoops and players scooping everybody else. And then like, all of it, like it's, it is, it is approaching a level that we normally see with the NBA. Um, and if there is that much energy and excitement um, and buzz on Twitter around the W can only be a good thing um bunch of stars are landing in my backyard here in brooklyn so um that'll that'll be uh that'll be interesting too but yeah i mean you know look it's it, there's always been this this um tense uh discussion around how the media covers or does not cover the WNBA and women's sports in general so but i think moments like this kind of help push it along but ultimately you know it's up to all of our bosses to decide to hire people to to do that and listen you know i'll be honest like i I don't write about the women's league because I have a full-time job covering the NBA, which is all encompassing and all time consuming 365 days a year as it is. So, um, but, but, you know, our, our bosses, editors, producers, everybody, publishers, they need to be the ones to really make the investment 
in uh, in covering women's sports at the level that is that is appropriate. Certainly, and there's no shortage of talent. Um, even just here in Toronto, Haley McGoldrick, Creedy Mustafa. There, there are a lot of people um, covering the WNBA passionately, and Toronto's certainly excited to uh, get a preseason game here in May. Our Chicago Sky, no longer our Chicago Sky, they're getting pretty thinned out. Uh, but who knows? Maybe we can convince the Mercury and, and uh, Courtney Vandersloot and John Quell Jones and Sabrina and uh, Brianna. Maybe we can convince them to do one here uh, at some point as well. Howard, let's uh, let's pivot to the NBA, to the men's side, because the news is only going to get crazier on that side as well over the next couple of days. Trade deadlines about a week away. Um, you mentioned, you know, we have similar Twitter followings and, um, you know, the same kind of people. Do you like this time of year? Like, is this next week fun chaos for you? Or is it, oh, goodness, get us past the finish line, please? You know, it's, it's it's funny. It just depends on, you know, what stage of my career we're talking about. <laughs> this is my 26th season covering the league. And, you know, as I, if I was covering a team, I spent seven years covering the Lakers. I spent nine years covering primarily the Knicks. Um, and I was at the New York Times for those nine years covering the Knicks, which meant that even if the Knicks didn't do anything, I had to double as national writer uh, for much of that because we didn't have anybody else doing the league as a whole. So it was it was chaotic and tense and, and whatever. And, and, you know, we're a newspaper. So everything is, you know, immediate. And we've got to, we had to, we have to confirm everything ourselves. That's the way that the New York times works. The, the rules are, are such that, you know, you are not reporting this unless we have it. And so it was definitely like a stressful, chaotic time during my newspaper years and my beat writer years for the last nine or 10 years. I've been in more of this national role where I'm, I'm, primarily writing features and analysis. I'm not on the hook to try to outmaneuver the professional newsbreakers who that's all they do is chase the, the trades and signings and, and firings and hirings and all that. So I don't, I don't really have to worry about that at that level. <laughs> thankfully. I mean, I'm my ears to the ground. I'm talking to people. I'm curious as everybody else is, but you know, a Rui Hachimura trade or anything of that level is not going to impact my my life, I don't think. But uh, you know, if the Lakers finally moved Russell Westbrook, if the Bulls decided to do the teardown, if the Raptors <laughs> decided <laughs> to do the big pivot, um, those are things that might affect my life over the next seven days in terms of my work uh, uh, duties. Let's talk about that Raptors team because I, I do get the sense from national media in the U.S. and I know you're regular on the low post. It's come up on there a couple times that the Raptors are this fascinating case study in, well, you have all of these players that other teams would really want and pay a lot for, but for some reason, your team's not good. Um, now, some of that may just be, you know, asking prices getting floated as we play the leverage game this time of year. But what is your sense, either personally or in talking to people around the league about, you know, where the Raptors are and what this pivot needs to look like? It's so hard, honestly. Like, it... It's hard to get a good beat on what they might want to do because they don't tip their hand. But it's also hard, even as just an analyst, if if, if you and I are sitting here looking at the, at the Raptors and saying, "Well, forget what they might do. What should they do? You know, what you know, where what's the way forward here?" I don't know if there's a great easy answer there. You know, when this team was overachieving, arguably a year ago, we're like, "Oh, the, you know, the, the, the future's bright. They're they're young and they're." Uh, versatile and they're deep and they're interesting and they're they're unusual <laughs> and and they and they're 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 leaning into you know certain aspects of of, of where the the game is headed right now and it looks like the right you know uh, you know uh, philosophy at the right time 
And then all of a sudden there's this big backslide. And <laughs> is that is that chemistry? Is that the lack of one frontline player as great as Pascal is? Is he not good enough to be your centerpiece? Is, is he better off as, as kind of the, the co-star? Well, then you need the star. Um, we've seen a bunch of teams in the last few years make deep runs and even win championships with which what I would call basically an ensemble approach. It's not the super team model. It's Giannis and a bunch of really good players. It's even Steph and a bunch of really good players because they're not, you know, stocked with all-stars anymore because of, of age and, and everything else. So, you know, the Suns when they were up against the bucks in the finals ensemble approach, not a super team. And so I thought the Raptors were kind of on the road to that. But if, if Barnes doesn't pop and become that star, if Siakam has already reached his peak in terms of you know being a guy you can build around, well then you're still missing the one guy who makes it all make sense, right? And that's why they were you know heavily involved in all of the Kevin Durant discussions last summer because you need that guy. It's why they traded for Kawhi Leonard. You know, where they, that franchise knows better than anyone that assembling a bunch of really good, well-fitting talent that you know performs at a high level and can win 50 plus games isn't enough in this league. You need a Kawhi Leonard, you need a Kevin Durant, you need a LeBron James, you need a Steph Curry, you need, you know, a Giannis. So I don't know what the answer is for them. I suspect it's not just to sit around doing nothing and hope that <laughs> things just magically change, especially when you've got some free agency issues, uh, you know, coming anyway with, with Van Vliet and, uh, and Gary Trent Jr. So I suspect we will see something, some sort of pivot, some sort of, of, of you know, course correction but probably not dramatic. Like, you know, I, I, I don't know what to make of, of all the Ananobi um, discussion. I, you know, obviously every team in the league would love to have him. So it's all that discussion is going to be there, whether or not they're willing to give him up or what the price is, is, is another story. In terms of the, you know, kind of outside interest in where the Raptors go here, I think you just laid out perfectly why it's such a complicated case and why it's not a black and white answer. Um, you said that, you don't think the Raptors will just sit here and wait for it to get better. We never expected Masai Ujiri to be, you know, ultra patient when he first came in and took this job about a decade ago, he came in and started to clean house and it's, you know, famously only the Kyle Lowry non trade to the Knicks that, that kept everything together long enough for the pieces to fall into place. And then he even ran the Kyle DeMar, JV, Dwayne Casey core back a couple of times uh, to give them more kicks at it. Is there an interest or fascination around the league at what um, Masai Ujiri teardown might look like? Because it seemed like we were going to get one out of the gate, and then it's just kind of never happened. Well, it's easier said than done. <laughs> it's 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 risky, um, and I don't you know, like I, I don't I don't think they're not a team that needs a teardown, right? Like mm-hmm. this is the the tear the teardown normally is in the old days it was you are capped out beyond belief. You've overpaid a bunch of guys. You're just a mess. You have no hope. You're just stuck. And you, you try to sell off pieces just to try to get yourself below the cap again, or just to clear the books and try to find a new path forward, whatever. And then there's like, you know, like the bulls are a great example, right? Like the bulls have just maxed out. Like there's no way the Chicago bulls are going to be anything better than a first round and out team this season or beyond. And so they have clearly hit the kind of ceiling where the logical thing is blow it up. Um, DeRozan's late in his career anyway. How many more years are you going to be good enough to, to get him anywhere? Um, you know, by the time he, he starts to fade. So you might as well trade him now when he's still got value. <clears throat> Zach Levine's got, you know, four years after this on his deal. Is he really a guy you're going to build around if you're already offloading DeRozan? Well, you might as well just 
offload Levine too. Like there's a really logical, not easy, but logical path where for a team like the Bulls that clearly has no detectable upside with this group to do the full teardown, blow it up, trade everybody who's worth something, get as many picks and young players as you can. The Raptors are different because they've already got some young guys and youngish guys um, who, you know, have shown some ability to play together and win, but they don't have, again, that number one guy who makes it all make sense. And so, you know, Barnes could become that guy. We don't know. it's, It's often the case that we don't see a franchise player coming, um, you know, a, a superstar coming. They, you, you see glimpses, but you don't know who's going to reach it and who's not. It's very rare to have somebody obvious on day one and, and have it be kind of this linear progression. So in the meantime, what's the best way? Is it to trade out some guys and, and acquire more picks and young players to, to, to build around a, a Scotty Barnes future? Um, I don't know. Like I say, these are these are tough questions, and I don't think the Raptors are in the classic position of the teardown team. They're not a teardown. They're a they're a we need to reshuffle a few things and clarify some things, um, and maybe take a step back to to to, to take two steps forward later. But it's it's not a blow up situation. And part of this is that they're at a time where this season hasn't gone well, and there are a lot of teams, you know, buzzards lurking around, predatory teams seeing guys that could really help a playoff run and maybe being willing to pay a price for them that you wouldn't be able to get at another time. So Howard, when you look at, when you look around the the trade landscape, whether it's the Raptors or, or another seller, um, what potential buyers intrigue you most? Because I look through the standings and you know, the East has mostly played out how we expected. Maybe the, the Knicks again in your, in your kind of backyard there have overperformed a little bit, but it's the Western conference where, you know, four games separate four, fourth and 13th in that conference. It feels like whatever happens over this next week could have a major, major impact in the Western conference playoff landscape. Um, What teams are you most interested in to see as potential buyers this next week? I mean, the the, the fact is, unless you're the Celtics, I was just uh, chatting with a Celtics fan earlier today. I'm like, I don't expect Celtics to make any moves because they've got everything they need. Like every team always wants something, but like our Boston's like the only team I could look at and go, yeah, they're fine. They probably (laughs) don't need to do anything. Almost everybody else you'd say, "Uh, you know, they've got a lot, but they could use X. And so almost everybody who's in the running in the East, everybody who's in the running in the West, and especially in the West where it's so tight, you know, any any team that's within five games of each other, the one team in that cluster that makes a good move at the deadline might vault themselves ahead of four other teams. You know, like the, the whatever happens over the course of the next week might make a huge difference because of how tight it is. I don't even think there's a clear favorite in the West, all due respect to the Denver Nuggets, who currently sit in first place with a three-game lead on the Grizzlies. But I don't think they're a clear-cut favorite because they're not a great defensive team. And the Grizzlies are sitting there in second in the West um, who may not have, you know, some of the offensive potency of the Nuggets all the time, but are certainly great defensively. And so, and then you've got this weird pack behind them where, you know, the Kings are a surprise team at third and the Clippers are right behind them. And, and you know, after a slow start, they're finally healthy. You, you ask who the most intriguing teams are. I, I kind of think it's teams that are not in that tier right now. It's the Warriors and whether they can find a way to leverage any of their young guys who in the short term, at least are not panning out and you don't have time to waste. You got to, you know, Curry's having a great year. Like 
are the Warriors going to find a way? Are there buyers out there for Weissman, Kuminga, Moody, any of these guys? Is there a move they can make to shore it up and give themselves a chance to defend their title? And that's back to the Lakers. I know everybody gets tired of hearing about them, talking about them, but we know what LeBron's doing. We know that Anthony Davis is playing at a really high level again as long as he stays healthy. They still need more help. And if they can leverage Russell Westbrook plus the two future picks, the thing we've been talking about for feels like eons, um, they, I think they should do it. But I, I don't know if, if they're all in on that idea. Huh, it would be – I'd have to imagine you could get a couple of really nice rotation pieces back if you if you included that 2027 and 2029 first, especially unprotected. Um, you mentioned LeBron, what LeBron is in the midst of doing or still doing, you know, coming up with new records that we never thought uh, we would have to consider breaking uh, of, you know, hey, a triple-double at this age or averaging this at this age. He's also – Fewer than 100 points from breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's uh, record for all-time scoring in the NBA. Um, Howard, you mentioned off the top, I, I don't want to age you, but you mentioned how long you've been in this game, uh, over 25 years now. Did you ever think we'd be watching Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's points total record be not only uh, beaten in the next week or so here, but also beaten by someone who it doesn't look like is really slowing down that much still? It's funny because I was working on some stories where I'm asking other people who are even older than I am, if you can believe that, um, <laughs> both both media people and former players, did they think at the time that Kareem broke it that it was ever going to fall again? And I think most people had with some mix of, no, I couldn't imagine it ever being done, but I also know that, you know, every record, you know, eventually gets broken. I think the thing that stands out is that, you know, Kareem played, you know, two decades and as a big man, you know, the big men have usually had the advantage in terms of longevity, especially when it was more of a big man's game. You could you could hang around for extra years. You could make it into your late 30s and maybe you make it to 40, whereas guards, once you've lost some of your quickness and it's, a, you know, it, the size matters in this game. And, and if you're smaller, you've got to make up for it with your athleticism. Once that, that starts to go, guards would, would tend to fade out sooner. Also, it, you know, we just never expect somebody's – you never expect somebody's going to play 20 years. <laughs> Very few do. And the guys who do, it's usually like, okay, Vince Carter played over 20 by just being a role guy at the end. That LeBron is doing this while still playing at an all-NBA level in year 20 is the part that absolutely stands out and what made this possible. And the fact is when we start talking about, well, what's the, what does it mean that he's going to have this record and it seemed unbreakable before, and now that he gets it, is it truly unbreakable – well, I mean, him breaking it makes us all think, well, we should never rule out anything anymore. Okay, fine. But he's doing it in year 20. He hasn't – I mean, he's slowed down a little, but not enough. He's still at an all-NBA level. And if he's still at an all-NBA level for another year or two or three, he's going to keep piling it on. And and he's going to almost put it out of reach. And I know we're in a three-point era, and I know we're in a high-tempo area with era with more possessions per game. And guys coming in now, you know, a guy coming in as a rookie now with a complete game and three-point range at, the, at a 40% clip, say, and maybe that guy spent, you know, plays 20 years. I mean, you can start doing the math, but you got to be really great for a really long time and not get injured either. And that's the other part of this, too. There's a little bit of good luck involved. Yes, he takes great care of his body. Um, that's something he has in common with Kareem. Kareem also took great care of himself, and it was part of his longevity. But that's the thing. Like it, it takes the, the raw talent first. It takes the dedication to the game. It takes wanting to play for 20 years. And then it takes 
the health and some good fortune. So I, I don't know what that all adds up to. I'm going to just say this. <laughs> I, I, if this record's ever broken again, I will not still be doing this job. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a <laughs> good point I will be happily retired it. somewhere. Or I would be happily retired or just simply long gone if it ever happens again. So I'm going to enjoy this moment because it's the only time I'm going to see it. Most fascinating LeBron stat that highlights the longevity, I think, is he's about to break the all-time scoring record. He has only led the league in scoring once. Uh, so kind of highlights how long you got to be at this. Um, Howard, before I let you go, uh, say that as I'm waiting for trades to happen over these next couple of days, I would like to have... Uh, a book in front of me and you know, do you have any, do you have any recommendations on new books that will be out very soon that, that maybe I would want to peruse in the next couple of days? Uh, I absolutely do. It's by my wife, Mia T. Beck. Uh, it's called the Pearl Hunter. It is technically a middle grade novel, which means eight to 13 year olds is the target range, but it's just a, a, a great uh, fantasy novel that I think is fun for all ages. And it is uh up for pre-order now. It is on bookshelves on February 7th. The Pearl Hunter people uh, go pick it up. If not for yourself, then for your kids, your friends' kids, nieces, nephews, grandkids, whoever. Uh, what was the hardest? Uh, so for anyone who didn't see Howard on, on Twitter earlier, was giving away some of the basketball paraphernalia around his office. Uh, if you showed that you had pre-ordered The Pearl Hunter, uh, what was the hardest thing to part with uh, that you gave away? I mean, so far, I've, I've only given away a, f a few of these items, some shirts, some books, uh, nothing difficult yet. Although, you know, you think twice before you send out a Bradley Beal uh, Black Panther special edition bobblehead. <laughs> but I thought, you know, somebody else is going to enjoy this much more than, than I will. So I, I, did, I did part with that. But uh, there are a few Raptors items still laying around here. Um, there's, I still have a backlog of media guides, which I'm going to dive into <laughs> on the next round of, of promotion. So if people want some, like, 15-year-old media guides, uh, keep an eye on my Twitter, at Howard Beck. I'll be diving into that probably tomorrow and or Saturday. Yeah, the Beal bobblehead is one thing. I, I think you're safe giving away the Rui Wizards uh, bobblehead at this point. Uh, Howard <laughs> still Beck. Still unclaimed. Rui Hachimura still unclaimed. People un come, come get him. Unbelievable. Um, Howard Beck of Sports Illustrated, of the Crossover Pod, uh, husband to the author of The Pearl Hunter, which is out next week. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out, Howard. <laughs> My pleasure, Blake. Thanks for having me. Howard Beck of Sports Illustrated and the Crossover Pod. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty fascinating to hear from smart, reasonable people in the national U.S. media about where the Raptors are um, because obviously those of us here who are going through this day-to-day, -day, there can be a bit of a tendency to, you know, every every new game is a, is a referendum on the team or the direction they should take. I'm going to talk to Eric Crean at 6.30, my old pal from Raptors Reasonablist when we had that podcast together. And, you know, the goal of that podcast, the name was kind of jokey, but it was always about trying to take a step back and, you know, take a, a more outside view or at least a, a view after you've been able to take a, an exhale following the, the game or, or the news. And, you know, that's why I find it helpful to talk to people like Zach Lowe, like Howard Beck, uh, like people around the NBA, um, because this isn't as black and white as sometimes it feels. And I know Raptors fans having gone through this for not only one year, but really the four post championship years have all kind of fallen into this. Well, what direction are they taking and what direction should they take conversation? And, and people are pretty dug in on one side or the other, which 
you're allowed to do. Uh, we're not here to police fandom and, and what your opinion on the team is. But I do find it pretty interesting that every time I've talked to a national person, with the odd exception, there's always the, you know, the Kevin O'Connor um, who wants to to see it blown up and see what that would look like. There's, you know, the Nate Duncans of the world who throw three or four different trades at it. And, and hey, maybe a different look in a similar spot shakes out that way. But then you talk to Howard or you talk to Zach and, and um, you know, the league is pretty curious about this as well. You ask people around the NBA covering it or, or in other front offices and coaching staffs, no one sees the easy answer for the Raptors. That is... That makes them fascinating this next week. It also gives them a little bit of leverage in trade talks, I think, because if executives around the league would understand if the Raptors weren't too aggressive, that means they can sit back in conversations and be like, okay, you don't meet our price. We'll hang on to OG Ananobi. He's 25 years old. He has at least one more year left on his contract, and he's very good. We can revisit this in the offseason or just continue employing the very good, very young, very affordable player. Uh, maybe a little harder to do that with Fred Van Vliet and Gary Trent Jr. We'll talk to Eric Kareen of The Athletic about that at 630. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll look ahead to the Super Bowl a little early. Battle of the Lions. We'll talk to Ross Tucker next on Fan Drive Time.